you know, the inspiro application is an easy thing to put into your life. Most people, unfortunately, they try to do the inspirational and never get to the doctrinal, and it wind up being very shallow. So last week, you know, as in all through John chapter 10, we've taken this parable, this story here, and we've really looked at it in depth as everything that it is. I want you to be able to cross-reference your Bible back from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, I'm not under any illusion at all if you are going to do that. I, I know that's not possible. I wish it was, but it's not. It's going to take somebody who has a desire to really get into the Word of God and, and learn it. There's a lot of God's people, and they're great people, but they all they ever want is a passing relationship with the Word of God. And that's okay if that's where uh, they're at. For me, you know, I, I, once I saw what the Bible was and got into it, there was, there was, <laughs> it, was, it was too late. There was no way that I wasn't going to get everything out of it that I could. And, uh, you know, I, don't, I get criticized, not, not really criticized, but on Thursday night, you know, some people out there on the uh, YouTube thing asked me to, you know, not spend so much time on a question to get more questions in. And, you know, I, I, I can honestly say I was never really interested in getting into the Guinness World Book of Records for answering questions on a Bible study night. I don't care if I only get one question done. When I'm done with it, I want to give you everything that there is to get about it so you can put your Bible together one piece at a time. And you remember last week we looked at our second story. I told you I was going to break John chapter 10 down into three or four different segments. It's better to understand it. And last week we looked at our second one. And, uh, you know, and... uh, uh, we saw how that it was a good background of, of God's Old Testament plan for the nation of Israel. A uh, couple of Thursday nights ago, I can't remember exactly when it was. It wasn't two, a couple of weeks ago maybe. Somebody asked a question out of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. And I talked about the mystery of iniquity. And uh, the mystery of iniquity, obviously, is the, uh, how the devil, uh, you know, and I know he talks about when Paul says the mystery of iniquity doth already work, talking about how the Antichrist was in pre- preparation for the second coming and what he wanted to do already in Paul's time. But the truth of the matter is that mystery of iniquity has been in, in play all the way back from Genesis chapter 1. And it, it, it's a great study to show you how the devil works through the nations, down through the Old Testament, and down through history to keep God's people, the nation of Israel, from fulfilling the plan that God had for them. From Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where the Bible starts and says, in the beginning, um, you know, to Revelation chapter 22, uh, it's his plan to stop God's people uh, in the Old Testament, and then later on in the church age, in the New Testament, from fulfilling God's place uh, or plan on planet Earth, getting it uh, into a simple format is what I want to do. I want you to be able to understand it. I don't want to make it complicated. I want to make it to the fact that any idiot can grasp it because that's what I had to do for this idiot to understand it, to put it down at the lowest common denominator that I could. And But without a doubt, seeing how the hand of God And I cannot emphasize this enough. Seeing how the hand of God works down through time, down through nations, and down through history. In spite of everything the devil does. And many times when you look at it, you see the devil kind of throwing all kinds of things at you. Well, it's just like what we're going through right now. 
<clears throat> Nobody likes the pandemic. Obviously, it came into this world, you know, to, uh, uh, to do all the damage they could do. But at the same time, <clears throat> you never want to lose sight of no matter what's going on. God is still at work and he's doing something. And so many times we get caught up in all the things that directly affect us. We lose sight of the hand of God and, and what he's doing. And I've, I know I've tried not only in my own life, but in my ministry to you to try to help always sort that stuff out. And, uh, you know, it's one of the greatest aspects of history to understand. There is no way... And I think this is a real failure today with preachers and teachers and, and God's people. There is absolutely no way today that you can, you can remove history from the Bible or the Bible from history. The two go together and they will form for you a solid wall of truth that just nothing can get through and nothing can get around. And it brings back the reality of what God has done, what he is doing, and how what he's done and what he's doing is all in preparation for what he's going to do. In the Old Testament, you see God's hand dealing with the nation of Israel. Boy, if you ever get that down in your own life where you can understand it and explain it without even getting into your Bible, you can just lay it out you really will have a handle on some things because it will, it will, it will bring about into focus everything that God is doing uh, and in, in a world scenario of four or 5,000 years where there's so much else going on. I mean, you got Alexander. You know, it always amazed me that when I told you last week about Darius, Darius, king of uh, Persia, uh, Ohasuerus and that crowd, when they went to Judah to go back, if you would look at history during that time, the historians would focus on the rise of Alexander the Great, the, this going on here, the demise of this, the demise of that, the great kingdoms going on all over the world. God wrote not one thing about any of that because God only cared about one thing, and that is his people going back. You have to put those things into perspective. I'm not saying you don't learn them. I'm not saying they're not important to understand, but it all comes back to what God is doing and what the devil is doing to try to stop him. And once you get that set in your mind, once you can break history down no matter where you go, that it's God moving in a direction to do what he wants to do and, and the devil moving in his direction to stop it, you see that in the Bible where God puts the emphasis. He cared nothing about Alexander the Great. He cared nothing about the, the feet of the Persians or the, or the Babylonians or the Assyrians. He didn't care. He wrote not one thing about it. He cares one thing, that is getting his people where he wants them to be to fulfill the plan in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, it's you and us, the church. The devil did the same thing in the New Testament that he did in the Old Testament to destroy how God wanted to reach the world through you and me, the church in the New Testament, just like he did in the Old Testament. It's the ability, we talked about this last week, and I gave you some great verses on it out of Matthew chapter 13 and Galatians chapter 5. It's the ability to separate leaven, false doctrine, from truth. The devil uses one of the great tools that his nations use down through history to keep our focus off the real thing. It's disinformation. 
<clears throat> the devil puts out so much disinformation to get us looking one way, when in reality, <clears throat> we should be looking someplace else. And that's what leaven does. It takes your focus off of what God is doing. And we can never lose sight of that. Because as we saw last week, it takes a little leaven, not a lot. It takes a little leaven to leaven the whole lump. And in time, truth gets destroyed simply because leaven, bad doctrine, gets secretly underneath the surface put in. And in time, when we wake up one morning, the great doctrines of the Bible are now gone. All this is completely overshadowed today as I said, by the Gentile education system, both secular and Christian. The Bible says in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, and again in Proverbs chapter 26, that when it's dealing with the nation of Israel, we should not be wise in our own conceit. The blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles, you and me, come in, and then all Israel shall be saved. The problem today is, in the secular world, And in many Christian venues, we become wise in our own conceits when it comes to the nation of Israel. And we lose sight of that. And I showed you how that God gave Israel, and you you don't see this today. God gave Israel three chances to get that kingdom. John the Baptist comes preaching the kingdom of heaven. They killed him. When Christ sent out his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, they're to preach the kingdom to Israel. They killed him. But as I showed you last week in Acts chapter 7, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, those seven chapters, God honors the prayer of his son and he gives them one more chance. And again, for the serious Bible student, that's why we're tackling it in institute. Probably never get back to institute, but we were tackling it before we all died with COVID. But anyway, That's why I wanted, once I got Matthew out of the way, I wanted to attack the book of Acts. You have to get that book down. It's an easy format. It's not hard at all if you just use it God's way, but you have to get it. If you're going to ever be a serious Bible student on a level that really understands the structure of the Bible, the book of Acts is you're going to be your meat and potatoes. You've got to get that done because it shows you God's hand down through history. And God's hand down through history will be the key to God's hand in your life today. But God's people never see it. We, you and me, are just like Israel in the Old Testament. We are part of his plan in the New Testament. So today, let's look at the next section of John chapter 10 today. This will be our third one. And uh, we're going to read John chapter, we're going to do a lot of reading today, but John chapter 10, verses 14 through 30. Here's our third section. I am, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep, and I am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, <coughs> which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, And they shall hear my voice, and they shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. There was a division 
therefore again among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, He hath a devil, he and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, These are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? And it was at Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be Christ, tell us plainly. (laughs) He's already told them about 9,443 times, but don't put that in your Bible just yet. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe not, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Let's pray. Father, help us today to glean out of this all that you'd have us to see. We thank you for those that are here today. Thank you for those that are home. We pray your comforting hand upon those who are not well, that Father, in all the cases that you know that uh, we know that you can just comfort them and help them to a speedy recovery to get them back in church, back into the things of God. We love you, Lord, and we just thank you for all you do for us now. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I want to start today by talking about Israel being likened to sheep. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to somebody, but what I want to do is pull the Old Testament and the New Testament, as far as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are concerned, I want to pull it together for you. First off, you want to know this. Sheep. Animals in the Bible are one of the greatest studies that you can ever take. And uh, they, God uses them to illustrate and to teach us so many things. Job chapter 12, uh, verse 7, he says there, But ask now the beasts, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee. God in the Bible will use animals to illustrate something. Once you learn what they all illustrate, it helps you break down the Bible as far as where you're at and what you're talking about and what you're really dealing with. And the reason he uses sheep, and I've always thought this was amazing, the reason he uses sheep to be a picture of Israel who are without a true shepherd. It will be because sheep have basically five characteristics about them, the real sheep, the animals. And when you look at sheep, you know, uh, and you study the way, the habits of sheep, you'll see why he used that example for the nation of Israel. You know, the Bible talks about dogs being likened to people over there in the, in the New Testament. And, and that is so true. You know, I'm a dog guy. Most of you, a lot of you are dog people out there. And you know that uh, there's different breeds of dogs. And, you know, you find, you find, you know, different, it's an amazing thing. You'll find dogs and the owners kind of have a characteristics of, between them. I got this guy across the street that's a, he's a 450-pound whatever, and uh, he's a, his wife's always yelling at him and telling him what to do, and he's, a, he's always bowing down to her, and he's got a little chihuahua. <laughs> now, that's good casting. Because that little, that little, maybe his wife ought to take the dog out because the dog's always yapping, and so is she. But it's in the family. 
And you know, so you see things like that. You see, you see guys who have character, guys who are strong. And, and, and you know, and that reminds me of a German shepherd. You have, you have people who are, who are loyal and people who are Gentile, but yet at the same time, that reminds me of Labradors or, or you know, Golden Retrievers. I mean, you have guys, you know, and people out there who, you know, and so Jesus likens them to dogs. Oh, uh, Sam Jones preached a message years and years and years ago, some dogs I have known, and he used their dogs and illustrated them to people. So animals in the Bible are very key. And you need to learn them. And uh, the reason why he does this is, is uh, you know, it's a, it, he wants to show us some things that we can understand. And the, and, and, and the reason he does it is because it pictures the five characteristics of the nation of Israel. And uh, it's, it's a thing where this is what you really want to look at when you, when you start coming through the Bible. Back in 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 3, we begin to see where the problem started here. And we're going to talk about the five characteristics here in a second. But he says back there in that chapter, for a long season, Israel hath been without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. Now, that's a picture of the nation of Israel after David and Solomon go off the scene and the apostasy, the leaven, begins to set in. Rehoboam and Jeroboam split the kingdom. We start to see now all the wicked kings come in and everything begins to spiral into the ground. And that's a picture, actually, of modern-day Christianity in the parallels. And you'll note that the three ways, three things here he says in chapter 15 are the same three issues today in the church. Nothing ever really changes. We may, they may wear robes and we may wear clothes. They may drive chariots. We drive, you know, Mustangs or whatever. But nothing really changes. And I think people sometimes get caught up in all of the scenery that back then they lived one way. We live another way. So it must be different. Human nature never changes. Clothing changes. Cultures changes. <coughs> fads change. Circumstances change. Human nature never does when it comes to God. And you're going to see that the same three problems Israel had are the exact three problems we have today. And that is, first of all, the body of Christ, the church, has lost the true God. They, they, they have a form of godliness. They're meeting in churches all across this country with the devil's Bible. And they're actually thinking God is showing up. They've turned a service into a halftime Super Bowl show. And they actually think God's interested in that. They've lost every aspect of what a, the, the true God demands. He demands holiness. He demands going by the scriptures. He demands doctrine. And we've lost that today. And then the second thing, no teaching priest. There ain't nobody teaching the Bible today. You get a lot of little sermonettes by a lot of little preacherettes. That's all you get. You get a lot of guys that give you fluff. They give you what they, what they but nothing of any substance. No doctrine. Nothing there. Nothing in it. And then the last thing, and boy, do we ever see this. You see, when you lose the true God... And then you lose the teaching priest. Then you lose your law. 
then there is no law. For a great example of that, just go to Chicago, go to Seattle, go to New York. There's no law today. There's a crime surge going across this country that's unbelievable. And the very institutions that we set up to protect you, the common people, and to deal with criminals, there's no law anymore. We have prosecutors now who aren't going to put anybody in jail. In certain places in Seattle and some of these places out there on the West Coast, if you don't steal, you can you see them on the news. They go in, they take bags, and if you don't steal anything over value of $1,000, nobody's going to do anything to you. Not only is there a great rush on going in and stealing stuff out of the stores, it's hard to buy a calculator because all these crooks want to keep it right under $1,000. Ridiculous. 346 police officers shot last year in the line of duty. 63 killed. Many of them are killed by guys that are back out on the street because they committed a crime. They put them in jail. The prosecutor, the judge, won't send them to prison. They let them out, and somebody gets killed. I, <laughs> I, I'm from Canton, Ohio, you know, and last week, I don't know if you saw this or not. Anybody see what happened in Canton, Ohio on New Year's Eve? This cop, you know, I don't know. Let me tell you something. If you shoot your gun off on New Year's Eve, you're, you're a fool. Because what goes up must come down. You were told all week before, and I'm sure in all cities, don't do celebration gunfire. So in Canton, Ohio, on New Year's Eve, this police officer gets called to a disturbance call of some suspicious. So he's, he's got it on his body camera. So he's walking around in the backyard looking for something, he sees a guy's head over the top of the fence. Now it's midnight. And before he can say anything, he hears bang, 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 bang. The guy didn't shoot once. I tried to count them, at least 20 rounds. The cop yells, shot fire, shot fire, shoots through the fence and kills the guy. And the guy was just celebrating New Year's Eve by shooting his gut off. Now you know what the lesson is in that? Obey the law. That's the lesson. You got a police officer, they're being ambushed everywhere. 63 of them were killed. Saw how many of them were killed, shot last year. And you expect that guy going out there in the middle of the night and somebody bangs off 20 rounds and he's going to wait and see if it's old long signs going to be sung afterwards? I'm telling you, this country's crazy. Lawless. No laws anymore. Do whatever you want to do. They've already come out and said that, that the things that people do that used to go to jail for are now going to be misdemeanors. Crazy. It's just nuts. And it's, of course, it's uh, uh, 346 police officers shot. That's one a day almost. Almost one a day. Incredible. And it all goes back to losing the true God. And when you lose the true God, then the church is fold up and you get a priest, a preacher, who won't teach the Bible truth, and then you lose any kind of semblance of law and order. And all through our study, we have seen Israel likened to sheep. And there's a reason for that. 
Sheep are a great study in the Bible. Now, first off, sheep will get lost three different ways. Now, watch this. Now, I, didn't, I got this from a shepherd in Montana. I was preaching out in Montana years and years ago, and they took me out to this big ranch. Now, you think farms in Missouri are big? These ranches, where they have cattle on some parts, they have sheep on other parts, and they, it takes them two days on horseback to get to the outer part of their ranch. That's how big it is. It's incredible. And I talked to this old shepherd, and I said, tell me about sheep. How long have you been a sheep, 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 sheep herder? At 8, 30, 40 years, I said, well, tell me what you talk about sheep. I see you got a bunch of sheep out here. Uh, they seem to be pretty orderly. You ever lose any? And if you do lose them, how do you lose them? And he said, well, let me tell you, preacher. He says, the greatest way that you lose sheep is because they are the most curious animals you ever saw. And they go places that they shouldn't go. I said, amen. He said, what would you say? I said, nothing. They go places they shouldn't go, and then they get into trouble because they, you know, have this curious side to them that they, 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 they see something over here, and uh, they go explore it, and next thing you know, a wolf gets them, a coyote gets them, and that's how you lose them. He's the second thing is sheep are always looking for greener pastures. They're never really satisfied with where they're at. And that's why you got to have sheepdogs to keep them corralled because they'll always continuously try to move over the cross the creek and get to another thing, and that's where they're going to get in trouble. And he said, and then they're scared of wild animals. He said, wild animals will scare them, and that'll, you know, that'll get them, disrupt them and get them running, and then they can be picked off. And I thought to myself, what great parallels that is, not only to the nation of Israel, but to God's people today. And he says, and you know, with that preacher, when a sheep gets sick, he won't follow the shepherd anymore. I said, amen. He said, what did you say? I said, nothing. He says, I'll tell you something else. When they get sick, they'll separate themselves from the flock and they'll get off by themselves someplace. And that's where they get into trouble and that's how they get killed. I said, wow. He says, and I'll tell you something else. He says, we keep the sheep because the sheep belongs to us. And I said, because <coughs> I asked him, what is the real purpose? And when he said this, I thought, wow, this isn't a picture of, of everything. He says, the sheep belong to the shepherd. We keep them, keep them healthy, keep them safe because come September or whenever it was, August, we shear the wool off of them and they, we take care of them. They give the wool back to us. And that's how we make a living. And I thought to myself, wow, that's a picture of all of our lives. A living sacrifice. We give back to him what he's taking care of us. And, you know, and that's a good inspirational application for a sheep. Even though in the New Testament we aren't directly, you know, likened to sheep. Israel is. But, man, the parallels are right there. Now, the greatest chapter, and here's where I want to show you how the Old Testament all comes together today with where we're at. I said some things last week that probably people scratched their head and said, well, I don't know if that's really... Well, we'll show you today. We'll, we'll, we'll make a note when we get there. But the great chapter on sheep and the shepherds uh, will be found in the book of Ezekiel. Most people don't know that. Most people would never suspect that. But it's a must-have understanding if you're ever going to figure out the first coming of Christ uh, and get it into a proper context. Ezekiel chapter 34, and here... We'll have a whole chapter, unequivocally, a whole chapter devoted to Israel as sheep 
and their leaders as shepherd, just like we're finding in John chapter 10. Now, you want to remember this, first of all, about the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is written during that 70 years captivity we talked about last week. It's a captivity book. And uh, it is written before Persia, Ahasuerus, sends them back in Esther. Esther. And uh, it, it, so it's, it's, it, it's written while they're in that captivity. In fact, Daniel, who writes the book of Daniel, he goes into this captivity when Nebuchadnezzar takes him down. Also, Ezekiel does. That's why you'll find in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, he tells you that he's among the captives. So I want to read chapter 34, the whole chapter, and uh, you can follow along with it. And then I'm going to make some comments, and I want to show you how you want to mark this back to where we're at today and show you how that it all goes together, because here's where it starts. This is where the beginning comes in. Chapter 34. (coughs) And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, unto the shepherds, Woe, uh, uh, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel, that you do feed themselves, uh, should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You, can, you eat the fat, and you clothe you with the wool. There it is. You kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. The diseased have not strengthened, have you not strengthened, neither have ye healed that which is sick, neither have ye bound that up which was broken, neither have ye brought again that which was driven away. Neither have ye sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty have ye ruled them. And they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and because the meat to all the beasts of the field, and they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yea, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search nor seek after them. Therefore, ye shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely, because my flock became a prey, and my flock became meat to every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, neither did my shepherds search for any my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and fed not my flock. Therefore, O ye shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. I will require my flock at their hand, and cause them to cease from feeding the flock, neither shall the shepherds feed themselves any more, for I will deliver my flock from their mouth, and they shall not be meat for them. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep, seek them out, as a shepherd seeketh out his flock, in the day that he shall among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and will deliver them out of all the places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from my people and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture and upon the high mountains of Israel shall they fold be and they shall lie in a good fold and shall in a fat 
pasture and shall feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will cause them to lie down, uh, saith the Lord God. I will seek that which is the lost and bring them which was driven away and will bind up which was broken and will strengthen them which was sick. Uh, but I will destroy the fat, the strong, and I will feed with them judgment. Uh, as you know, and as for you, O my flock, thus uh, saith the Lord God, behold, I judge between cattle and cattle, between rams and between goats. Seemeth it a small thing unto you to have eaten up the good pasture, and you have tread down with your feet the residue of your pastures. Uh, you have drunk of the deep waters, but you foul of the residue of your feet. And as the flock they eat that which you have trodden your feet, and they drink that which you have fouled with your feet. Uh, therefore thus saith the Lord uh, unto them, Behold, I even I will judge between the fat cattle and between the lean cattle, because uh, you thrust with side and with shoulder and pushed all the disease with your horns till you scattered them about. Therefore will I save my flock. They shall no more be a prey, and I will judge between cattle and cattle. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. Now keep in mind, David's long dead. <laughs> Watch this. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, and I the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it. And I will make with them a covenant of peace and will cause the evil beast to cease out of the land and shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them on the hills place uh, round about my hill a blessing. And I will cause the shower to come down in season and there shall be showers of blessing. There's where you get your song. Uh, and the tree of the field shall yield her fruit and the earth shall yield the increase and they shall be safe in their land and shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken the, broken the bands of the yoke and delivered them out of the hand of the, and served themselves uh, of them. And they shall no more be a prey to the heathen, neither shall the beast of the land <coughs> devour them, but they shall dwell safely and none shall make them afraid. And I will raise up for them a plan of renown and they shall be no more consumed with hunger in the land, neither bear the shame or the heathen anymore. Thus shall they know that I am the Lord their God with them. And they, even the house of Israel, are my people, saith the Lord. And you are my flock, the flock of my pasture, amen, and I will your God, saith the Lord God. Well, that's for your Bible reading for the next week, so you don't have to worry about it. Now, <clears throat> trained eye. Let's see what you can find out of here. Say you're reading this and you're reading this and I've already told you that you want to look for the parallels of where we're at. This is where the Israel are first called sheep and we start to see a problem with the shepherds, the leaders of Israel. It started way before the first coming of Christ. That's the first thing I want you to see. Now, I'm going to go through here and we're going to break this down and I'm going to point out to you where it goes to John chapter 10. You should now be far enough along, some of you, to be able to pick some of this stuff out of here. And uh, it, it, again, the whole Bible goes together with just keywords. Well, just watch, just watch, just watch. Now, we know that this is the mystery of iniquity starting all the way back here. It's been all the way through your Bible. And you know that history is all about, and I've said this, God moves in a direction to do his deal. The devil moves in a direction to stop it. We know that. This is one of the great studies in the Bible. 
Uh, it will be the devil working down through history through nations. Now, let's break this down. Let's see what you can see here. I'm going to read it in the sections and then, uh, thank God we won't read the whole thing again, but I'm going to read the sections here and then I'm going to pause for a minute. I'm going to ask you, what do you see? Here we go. First three verses. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel that you do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Uh, you eat the fat and clothe you with the wool. You kill them that are fed, but you will not feed the flock. Now, obviously, we see that they're not doing their job. But if I'm reading this, what would be the one key word that would connect this for me through the trained eye to the first coming of Christ dealing with the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees? Just look at it for a moment. One little word. Okay, here we go. You don't have to tell me if you got it or not. It's the word woe. You say, what's so big about that? Well, because over there in Matthew chapter 23, when he deals with the scribes and the Pharisees, that's the great woe chapter. He gives them eight woes in that chapter. He says, woe unto you scribes and Pharisees. Woe unto you eight times. That immediately connects it back to here and here back to there. So we now know that the scribes and the Pharisees in the New Testament and Matthew that he's talking to is the same crowd that he's talking to back here. That sets the context. Verse 2 tells us they're not feeding the flock. We know that. But they're feeding themselves. In other words, they're not giving the people anything, but they're living off the people and what they get from the people. They're living great lives while the people are not. Wow, if that isn't a picture of what I said last week about the mega church pastors and all the pastors out there that teach their people nothing but living like kings while the people live just normal lives. This is, this is where you begin to see this. Second thing, verses 4 and 5. The diseased have not strengthened... Have ye not strengthened? Neither have ye healed that which was sick. Neither have ye bound up which was broken. Neither have ye brought again that which was driven away. Neither have ye sought that which was lost. But with force and with cruelty have ye ruled them. And they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. Now, let's look at this. Again, we see in both cases, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, <coughs> the church in the New Testament, a complete breakdown of the job of leadership. Now, I'm going to say this to you. <coughs> no two people groups in the history of the world, Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, both of them are absolutely dependent on good leadership. If they don't have good leadership, they're going to get into a mess. You're going to see that in the nation of Israel, when they had leaders like Moses and Joshua, David, they were great. When they had guys like Ahab and Jezebel and Jehoiakim and, and the rest of those guys, they were terrible. They are dependent on good, biblical, strong leaders who stay 
connected to God and the Bible and preach the truth to them, even when they don't like it. They didn't always like what Moses said, but it didn't matter. They were the great nation that God wanted them to be because they followed a leader. You see, it, it's true in the world. Hey, when God gave Germany Martin Luther, it turned the whole world toward Christ. When the devil gave him Adolf Hitler, it turned the whole world into chaos. They're dependent on people are dependent on leadership. This is the problem in our country today. We don't have any good leaders anymore. Nobody's leading. <clears throat> Nobody's going to stand up and take a stand for the truth. Everybody is so afraid they're going to lose an election or they're not going to get their power base back or they're going to lose this. They're willing to sell their birthright, which is what they should stand up for and lead. All that's wrong with this country is a lack of leadership. What's wrong with the church is a lack of leadership. What's wrong with Israel was a lack of leadership. And you see it in this chapter. Now this is why, I'm just telling you. <laughs> you don't have to be a rocket scientist. This is why I focus so much in this church on taking any man or woman or anybody who has even a resemblance of ability to be a leader and try to train leaders because Christianity has a great lack of leaders today. Men and women who will stand up and know how to lead because they know what the Bible says and they're going to take their stand for it. That's what Israel needed. But instead, the leaders are taking everything they can get from the people. They're living great lives while the people are suffering. And that's what you've got today. He says, you've not brought back that which you have driven away. And in the church today, that's restitution. There's a lot of people burned out on Christianity today. Some of you were the same way before you found this place. And you realize that there is truth still. It talks about healing people who are sick. That's spiritually. I know we're going through a pandemic right now and physically people are sick. I can't fix that. But if you have a spiritual issue and you're spiritually sick... I got the cure. Amen. The churches today, <coughs> they don't care about your problems. Like I said last week, they don't care what you're going through. All they care about is you show up and you gave your offering and you're here. Whatever you're struggling with is your deal. <coughs> I'll tell you something else. Bound up that which was broken. That's families. That's marriages. That's people with broken lives that are all busted up because of this world. And in and, and Israel's time, they, they wouldn't do it. And in Christianity today, they won't do it either. I don't care what you're going through. They'll say, well, I'll pray for you. You know, the biggest, most callous, the most biggest lie, the most biggest facade in 99% of God's people's lives today is when you tell them a problem and they'll say, well, I'll pray for you, brother. They forget about you in the next 10 seconds. They don't care about the brokenness in your life. They don't care about the captivities that you've been held by. They don't care about the spiritual sickness you're going through. All they care about is what you can do for them. Then the next one, verse 6. 
See, see if you can put this one together. My sheep wandereth through all mountains and upon every hill, a high hill. Yea, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. Now, let me, let me, let me put this in a context for you. <clears throat> in 606 B.C., in 606 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar comes down, a little bit after that uh, or before that, uh, Assyria takes the northern tribes in, the Jews are scattered everywhere. A small remnant, what, 42,000 out of 200 million people go back to 70 years later, but they are scattered. They're everywhere, all over Asia Minor. For 400 years, they're scattered in every place that's in the known world. And many of them lose their own native tongue of Hebrew. They're over here in this land or that land, and, you know, 400 years Later, they're not even speaking Hebrew anymore. But they're Jews. And the, the shepherds scattered them. So when Christ shows up the first time, what does he do? He searches and he seeks after them. Whoa, where's that end of my Bible? Oh, how about over there in Luke chapter 19, verse 10? The Son of Man has come to what? Seek and to save that which was lost. What was lost? Israel, they're scattered. Now, I don't mean to break the heart of all you charismatics out there that may have got the wrong YouTube channel this morning and decided to stick with it. But this is why when he shows up at the first coming of Christ, they speak in tongues. You're told in Acts chapter 1 and 2, you're given the very nations of which they're all dispersed to. There's 10 or 15 nations there that they're living in because they have been scattered for 400 years. They no longer speak the Hebrew language. So when Jesus shows up, he has to seek them. He has to bring them back. He has to get his people that have been scattered by their shepherds, he has to get them the truth. So he gives the apostles the ability to speak in tongues. Tongues were never some spiritual utterance that nobody understood. In Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, it clearly tells you, we hear every man speak in our own tongue and little down a little farther, our own language. See how it all makes sense? One passage in the Old Testament connected to the New Testament, showing you why things are the way they are at the first coming of Christ and the way they are today. But it gives you the basis to understand why it happened the way it happened. This is why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22, the tongues are for a sign. This is why it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 122 that it's Israel that looks for that sign. That's why if you want to find a prophecy on tongues, you'll go back to Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11, and he tells you there that God is going to speak to them in other tongues. Why? Because of the passage right here. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yeah, they were scattered upon all the face of the earth. And at the first coming of Christ, he comes back to bring them back together. But they've lost their original tongue of Hebrew. 400 years now. It's like an Italian, your parents or your great-grandparents came over here in the 1920s. And you're, you're an Italian as it can be, but you don't speak the language anymore. See how quickly it goes? Two generations here. 
We're talking about 400 years. And they're gone. So when he sends his people out to reach them, he gives them the ability to speak in tongues. And that's why the Bible says, where there's tongues, they shall cease. Because there comes a time when they don't need it anymore. Why? Acts chapter 7, he's done with Israel. See, this is how you put your Bible together. This is how you be able to rightly divide the word of truth. All right, the next one. 7 through 10. Here it comes. Let's see what we can see here. Therefore, ye shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely my flock became a prey and my flock became meat to every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, neither did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and fed. He keeps hitting that point. Therefore, O ye shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand, because them that cease from feeding the flock, neither shall the shepherds feed themselves any more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouth, and that they may not... Be meat for them. You know what he's saying? Verse 7 and 8 tells us that there is an absolute, complete breakdown and failure of leadership in the nation of Israel, just like there is today. Verse 9 and 10, he says, I will require my flock at their hand. What does he mean by that? He's going to hold these leaders accountable for what they did not do with his people that was the right thing to do. He's going to hold the shepherds accountable. Now, this is why when you get over, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. This is why when you get over in Matthew and he's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what does he say? Ye shall receive the greater damnation. That's in the woe chapter, by the way. He's going to hold failed, listen to me. He is going to hold failed leadership for the nation of Israel accountable. Now, the great single concept of the Bible is consistency. So I'm just going to tell you right now. Wait till the judgment seat of Christ when you have all these pastors who are living way beyond where they should, who are doing all the things about the Bible and taking it out of their people, not feeding their sheep, not giving them truth, not giving them doctrine, but living like they're in the millennium right now. You wait till those bozos hit the judgment seat of Christ. It's no wonder 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says it's the terror of the Lord. There's going to be a judgment day, not only for the leaders of Israel, but there's going to be a judgment seat of Christ for the leaders of the church who did not hold up the truth to their people. Look at verse 11, 12, and 13. Now we began to see, well, let me read it first. For thus saith the Lord God, behold, I, even I, both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day, that is, he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of the places where they have been scattered in a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and from bring them to their own land and will feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and by the inhabitant places of the country. Okay, what do you see there? See, the thing that pops out right out of the out of thing is verse 12 at the end, cloudy in a dark day. 
That's the whole book of Joel. That's the second coming of Christ. That's the day of the Lord. So what you have here, once he's talked about the shepherds and all that they've done wrong, now he's going to switch and show you what he's going to do to bring his people back. So you know what you got in verse 11, 12, and 13? You got the beginning of the Zionist movement, which leads up to the cloudy and dark day, the second coming of Christ. Now you got, what, 1880s? Theodore Herzl with the beginning of the Zionist movement, 1918 with the Belfar Declaration, 1948, the Jews become a nation. You know what God did? He did exactly what he said he was going to do right there. He brought all those Jews from all over the world after World War II and brought them back to the land and made them a nation. Why? Why? Because because a bunch of Gentiles felt sorry for the Jews that they had no nation. So the guy by the name of Lord Belfar said, well, let's put a declaration out there that we give the land back to the Jews. Is that why he did it? That he did it because he felt sympathy because the Gentiles? No, he did it because those Jews have to be back in the land again for the second coming of Christ, just like they had to be back in the land in Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. For the first coming of Christ. The Jews go two times, two times back in history to the land. They go back in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther before the first coming of Christ. And they go back in 1948 before the second coming of Christ. You know what God did in both cases? He used the Gentiles out there to bring his people back, to get them back in the land. I just, I... Somebody said one time, and I believe this with all of my heart, World War I got the land ready for the Jew. Because in World War I, it broke up the dynasty monarchs in Europe of Germany, Austria, Italy, Russia, and all of those nations that ruled Europe for centuries. Now they're gone. So the land got changed in World War I. And in World War II, it is said... Where World War I got the land ready for the Jew, World War II got the Jew ready for the land. And God used Adolf Hitler to do that by persecuting to the point where they wanted to get out of Europe. And he killed six million. My point is this. <laughs> if you ever can see history through the Bible eyes, they become a nation in 1948. God's plan was to get them back. Do you know what God did? God killed 30 million Gentiles in World War I, 80 million Gentiles in World War II, just to get that Jew back to the land in 1948. Tell me God's not a racist? You tell me God's not prejudiced? You bet he is. It isn't white power. It isn't blue power. It isn't black power. It isn't red power. It's Jew power. That Jew's going to rule the world someday. God cared nothing. He cared nothing about Guadalcanal. He cared nothing about Normandy invasion. He cared nothing about St. Lo. He cared nothing about Rommel in Africa. All he cared about was getting that Jew to the place by Gentile nations that he could bring them back that were scattered. Wow. Whole different perspective on history. Gives a whole new meaning now when a guy makes the touchdown in a football game and looks up and gives God the glory for it. God says, God bless your son, make another one. God doesn't care. He doesn't care how many home runs somebody hits. He doesn't care how many touchdowns you make. 
God today cares about one thing, in case you ain't figured this out. That's his bride or his, his wife, the nation of Israel. He wants her back. And everything he's doing and has done down through history is one, to get her to the land. When she didn't do what's right, then he used the other nations to chastise her and scatter her. But now he's going to bring her back. That's all he cares about. That's all God cares about. All he cares about is his people being back in that land because he's getting ready to come back, which I'm going to show you in just a minute. You know all Christ cares about? You. He only cares about you. He didn't care about the Super Bowl. He's not up there praying for the Chiefs who are going to be one and done probably next week. Amen. He didn't care about all the things out there that everybody puts the things in. He didn't care about the beautiful sunrises and the sunsets. I mean, uh, when he sees a sunrise and a sunset, all he thinks about when that sun comes up in the morning, it's blood red. When it goes down at night, it's blood red. He doesn't look at it and say, my, isn't that beautiful. He thinks about the day his son, his son hung on that cross and shed the blood for you and for me. That's all he thinks about. Song of Solomon chapter 2 says that he's, right now, he's looking through the lattice. He wants a glimpse of you, his bride. He, he, he's like a nervous husband on the day of his wedding. He wants to be with his bride so desperately. He's peeking at us right now. He's looking down, wanting to be with us. And God's people go through their life and don't even know about that. And the ones that do know about it don't even care about it. Nothing's changed. God cared nothing about the Gentile nations in Daniel chapter 2 of Daniel's image. All they were there for was for the devil to use to stop God and for God to use to get his people back. And the Gentile nations in the 18th century, 19th century, and the 20th century aren't any different. All God cares about is his people Israel, and he's orchestrated the whole history of the world for a day coming that I'm going to show you in just a second. And what you and I are witnessing right now is the fulfillment of what happens. The Zionist movement in 1880, the Belfar Declaration in 1918, and then they become a nation in 1948. God had to get the land ready for the Jew and then get the Jew ready for the land. And lo and behold, 1948, God fulfilled what he said he was going to do. They're back in the land. Why? Because they have to be there for the second coming of Christ. Just like they had to be there for the first coming of Christ. Oh, and I'll just throw this in. 400 years, 400 years, 400 years from the time that God shuts down the Old Testament till he shows up at the first coming of Christ. And in that 400 years, the last time God spoke to them, 400 years later, Christ shows up at the first coming of Christ. In that 400 years, God speaks to no man other than it was already written. And your King James Bible came out in 1611. And God spoke to no man for the next 400 years other than through that book. And the next time you'll hear God say anything will be the second coming of Christ at the end of those 400 years, just like it was at the end of the first 400 years with the first coming of Christ. You'll have to pay extra for that. That's history. That's history and the Bible cemented together to show you what he's doing so we have a better understanding of what we ought to be doing. 
And he says, the cloudy and dark day, clouds in the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 1, I've given it to you many, many times. Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2. Jesus goes up in the cloud. The angel says, this same Jesus you saw go up in the cloud, going to come back in the cloud. You better study your clouds in the Bible. God's people think they're going to get away with anything and God's so stupid and blind. But you know what? Science is just now revealing it. Technology is now revealing it. That all the stuff you got on your phone that you wouldn't want anybody to see when you send it up there, you know where it goes? In a cloud. What did they, what did they just say, warehouse? Why did they pick the word cloud for all your private information to be stored in? Because he's coming back in the cloud, and when he comes, he's bringing that cloud with him. Judgment seat of Christ. All right. This place is quiet as a turkey farm day after Thanksgiving, man. Come on. Verse 14 and 16. This was a good day to stay home. You probably passed out on the floor already. Here we go. Now, see... We're up to the point. We're at the point now where he has searched them out, brought them back. We put that into a context. Historically, it'll be the first coming of Christ. Doctrinally, second coming. Now here it comes. And I will feed them in a good pasture. And upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. They shall lie in a good fold. And in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God, and I will seek that which was lost, and bring them which was driven away, and will bind them up which was broken, and will strengthen them that was sick, and I will destroy the fat and the, uh, and the strong, and I will feed them with judgment. Verse 17, if you want to mark it there, will be a, a picture of the judgment of the nation, back there in Matthew chapter 25. Now, what do you see in this one? See, last week, I'm sure, last week some of you listen out there, maybe even some of you here, when I said Psalm chapter 23 wasn't really to you, it was to the nation of Israel, but you can make an inspiration some of it. I, some of you probably yawned and said, yeah, right. Okay, here it is. Look at it. Verse 14. I will feed them in good pastures. See that thing? Look down there, verse 15. I will cause them to lie down. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in what? Green pastures. There it is, right there. It's Israel. It's Israel. Now, you can make a spiritual application if you want, but doctrinally, that is Israel in the millennium. This will be Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 through 11, the rest for God's people that they never got in this life, they're going to get in the millennial reign of Christ. Right there, you got it. The good pasture, going to make them lie down. Everything's at peace. Just like John chapter 10, verse 8 and 9 last week that I gave you. All right, let's look at the next one, 23 through 31. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, my servant David, a prince among them. Uh, I, the Lord, have spoken it. I will make them a covenant of peace and will cause the evil beast to cease out of the land, and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. 
and I will make them and the places round about all my hills and blessings, and I will cause the showers to come down in the season, and there shall be showers of blessings. And the tree of the field shall yield her fruit, and the earth shall yield her riches, and they shall be safe in the land, and shall know that I am the Lord, where I have spoken the, broken the bands of their yoke, and delivered them out of the hand of those that serve themselves of them. And they shall no more be a prey to the heathen, neither shall the beast of any land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will raise up unto them a plan of renown, and they shall be no more consumed with the hunger in the land, neither bear the shame of the heathen any more. Thus shall they know that I, the Lord, their God, am with them. And when they have it in the house of Israel, and my people, saith the Lord God, and ye, and ye my flock, the flocks of, here it is again, my pasture, are men, and I will am your God, saith the Lord God. Now, this one's loaded. By the way, this is, now we're in it, now we're in the millennium. This is Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48, found in the book of Ezekiel here. And now this all will be laid out in chapter 40 through chapter 48 in great detail. Yes, we're not going to do that today, but I want to point out this to you. This is the millennial now, millennial reign of Christ that has come in at the second coming of Christ. <coughs> here it comes. Stay with me. They go into the captivity in 606 B.C. They're there for 70 years. God raises up a Ahasuerus and some of the people there to get a, a remnant to go back. They go back in the land because they have to be in the land when Jesus shows up at the first coming of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to bring in the kingdom of heaven. They bring in the, show Jesus shows up, bring in the kingdom of heaven. He gives them three chances. John the Baptist says, the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus sends him out, kingdom of heaven is here. They kill those two guys. In Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 7, Peter and then lastly Stephen gives them the final chance to get the kingdom and they kill him, kill Stephen, and they reject Peter. So what happens? We go into the church age, final rejection. God temporarily puts Israel on the back burner. What happens? Church age comes in. For the next 2,000 years, God begins to reach out to reach the Gentiles. He wanted to reach them through Israel, but that didn't work. So now he's going to do it another way. So now we get close to the end of time. God says, I'm going to restore my people, but I got to get my people back in the land. So what does he do? He uses Gentile nations again to get the Jew back in the land in 1948. And now it's all ready to go. Only this time, this time, this time, they'll accept him. Because this time, he's not coming as the lowly Jesus, the shepherd of Israel. This time, he's coming with the eyes of a burning fire. This time, he's coming with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. This time, he's coming with hairs like wool of fire. And this time, he's coming, and he's going to kick the snot out of everybody that gets in his way. Amen. And Israel's going to be saved. See how easy that is? I just put the last 3,000 years in history in an easy, understandable format that you could, you, you know, you, it's like one of those little things you had to get out of the box of Captain Crunch or Mahone's Crunch. Now they don't use Captain Crunch anymore. And, and get the answer to it. It's right there. This is Cracker Jack stuff, man. You kidding me? Okay, here we go. All this is in Ezekiel 40 through 48. Verse 24, David the Prince. In the millennium, you have Christ sitting on the throne 
and on his right hand is David, and David's the prince of Israel. You'll find that in Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 3. He has his own gate that he comes into his throne. It's all laid out for you right there. The next thing he says in verse 25 is a covenant of peace. That'll be the new covenant that he makes with them in Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 9. It's all laid out for you right there. He says, uh, he says verse 26, showers of blessings. You should have picked this one up. This will be the former and the latter rain I've told you about so many times that comes in and ushers in the second coming of Christ. There shall be showers of blessings. When we sing it in our hymnal, there shall be showers of blessings. It's a millennial song. It works for us because we get showers of blessings when you get saved. Doctrinally, doctrinally, goes right back to here and the millennium. All right, uh, verse 27. Here it comes, here it comes. And the tree of the field shall yield her fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase, and they shall be safe in the land and shall know. You know what that is? That's Psalms 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not on the counsel of the godly, nor standeth the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But he, he shall be like a what? Tree planted by the river of waters that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. Now we make it us, which is a great inspirational application. Doctrinally, that's Israel right here. Now bearing fruit. As a tree of life. Now, inspirationally, it's us. Spiritually speaking, I win somebody to Christ, I'm bearing true fruit of the tree of life. But doctrinally, right here. This is the difference between understanding your Bible or playing with your Bible. This is the difference of being a bona fide, viable Bible student. And I'm not saying you figure it all out, but I'm saying you know you got a gold mine and you keep digging. Verse 28, 29. Verse 29, and I will raise up them a plant of renown. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll find him as the plant, tender plant in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. He's the tender plant that was planted at the first coming of Christ. He goes through the cross and gets fertilized through all the things that he goes through. And in the millennium, he becomes Israel's plant of renown. And then again, 30 and 31, just for the slow class, and my flock, the flock of my pastor, they're in God's green pastures now, lying down by the still waters, and they're going to dwell in the house, the nation of Israel, of the Lord forever. I mean, it's just that simple. Now, that's how you put your Bible together. <clears throat> that Bible goes together in a consistent, systematic way that connects itself. And it's all built on, as you saw today, not one word of Hebrew, not one word of Greek, based on the basic, simple words found in your Bible. And that is why. The shepherds today want to steal the Bible, steal your inheritance. So you know what they do? They steal the words out of your Bible by changing them. The God's people are dumb enough to buy into it. Problem today? Same problem as Israel. No leadership. Now you can see how all the pieces fit. To give you a complete picture and understanding of how the Old Testament will give us the reason for Christ's rejection by Israel at the second coming. The unbiblical religious leaders, the shepherds, just like today, 
So as we see today and last week, the Old Testament passages will fill in the blanks of what's taking place at the first coming of Christ. Now we know. Now we understand when we read in John 10 or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but particularly in John 10, and we're seeing all this issue over his miracles and all this fuss over who he really is. Now we have a context to it all. The context in the weeks to come is only going to get clearer. Now, with all that under our belt, quickly here, let's define, let's define the key areas, going back to chapter 10, let's define these key areas now that we have a basis to work with. And you'll see it again. And you'll want to get these in your Bible, just like I've all this other stuff that I've given you today. You maybe didn't get it in as we're doing it, but boy, I'll tell you what, this stuff will be invaluable working it back and forth if you're ever going to get a handle on the Bible. Now back in John chapter 10 and verse 16, this is where we started. He said this, And other sheep have I which of not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Now, a lot of people look at this and get a little confused about it, but uh, now that we have a context, then we know where we're going to go with this, doctrinally and inspirationally. Okay, here's what you got. Doctrinally, the sheep of another fold will be the Gentiles in the tribulation period who were evangelized by the 144,000 in Matthew chapter 22, Revelation chapter 7, Revelation chapter 14. They're Gentiles. They're not of this fold. But would they have to become a Jewish proselyte in the Old Testament uh, and in the tribulation so they become one fold? But we know that that didn't work, did it? Because Israel rejected. And that now is not going to be fulfilled till the tribulation. So inspirationally, the other sheep of this, not of this fold, will be the Gentiles in the church age, you and me. And when you get saved and I get saved, we become part of his body, one fold. In the body of Christ, there's neither what? Jew nor Gentile. We're one fold. So there again, this is the importance of understanding what's going on in the book of Acts. What's happened at the first coming of Christ, why it got temporarily put on a back burner because of Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. And then the church age starts after chapter 7. Paul gets saved and it all moves toward uh, the rapture of the church and ultimately the second coming of Christ. But God had a plan now because of Israel's rejection. These are things you've got to see. And the average Baptist preacher, forget the evangelicals, they're not even in the same league. The average Baptist preacher, when he looks at the book of Acts or you would ask him about the book of Acts, he hasn't got a clue. He thinks everything in Acts chapter 1 through 7 is the church age. He thinks he sees the word church and he runs home to mama so fast your head will swim. He does not understand how to break that book down that the church doesn't even get considered. Romans chapter 16 till after Acts chapter 7. So Acts chapter 7 is that little intermediate period in there, boy, that if you don't catch it, you're done. You're done. You'll never figure it out. And that's what you've got. So we see now that the other fold are going to be doctrinally the 144,000 reaching out to the Gentiles, but because of that rejection, spiritually it goes to the Gentiles. Look at verse 17. Therefore doth my Father love me because I lay down my life 
that I might take it again. You see, here's the great parallel, the great difference. Christ is willing to lay down his life for the sheep, the nation of Israel, chapter 10, verse 11. And of course, this is the Old Testament passages like Isaiah chapter 53, found in the book of Psalms, found in the book of Job. Doctrinally, it's all dealing with Israel. He came to die for Israel, but Israel rejected, so then it becomes part of the church age. You have to ask yourself the question, and I certainly don't have an answer to this, but you have to ask yourself the question, and it's okay to ponder, but you don't ever go there and stay there. You have to ask yourself the question, what would have happened to you and me if the Jews would have accepted in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, or any place along the line? What would have happened to us? Where would we be? Would there still have been a church age? Why would there have needed to be a church age? How would we got into the body of Christ? I don't have the answer to those things. All I know is this. God always has a plan that he's going to follow through when somebody doesn't do what's right. It's like your life and my life. God has people this week that he wants to put you up against to give a witness for Christ. Some of us will fail that because we're not paying attention or we've got our own things going. You know what? God's not going to let that person go to hell because of our stupidity. God will send him somebody else. God always has a plan to get the job done. We just lose the blessings from it. You want to remember that. That's why you always want to focus on what God wants to do with you. He'll get somebody else to do it. I'm a very selfish individual. I don't want somebody else getting my millennial inheritance. God knows I need all the help I can get. I want my own. I never want to stand there and have God say to me, well, I had on Tuesday you to go with this guy, but you got so caught up in what you were doing, you missed it, so I gave it to Joe Schmo to do. I don't want that. But that's what he did with the Jews. He says, I gave it to you. You rejected it three times now. It's going to the Gentiles. And I'll get done with the Gentiles what I would have got done with you, but I can't do it. So we'll deal with you later. Right now, we're going to switch this thing, and the Gentiles are going to get the job done that you would have done if you'd have done what was right at the first coming of Christ. Now, I don't understand what all that is, but I understand how it played out. And you and me are Joe Schmo, by the way. He, he took it from Israel and gave it to us. And the church now is carrying a ball. Look at verse 18. Now, this is something you want to get. No man taketh it, talking about his life now, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it, up, take it again. And this commandment have I received from my Father. Now this is one of the, you wouldn't see this or think of this, but this is one of the great verses found in the Bible on the Trinity. You know, there's groups out there like the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, and some of these other groups that don't believe that Jesus Christ was God. And they believe that he's a lesser God. But this shows you here, along with what I'm going to give you, that that is not true. That Jesus was very much God, as much of God was as the Holy Spirit of God is. And in the doctrine of the Trinity, it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and all three are one. Let me show you something. 
concerning the resurrection of Christ. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 1 and Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20 and other places too, the Bible says that God raised up Jesus. In John chapter 2 verse 19, uh, John chapter, excuse me, 8 verse 11, it says the Holy Spirit of God raised up Jesus. And in John chapter 2 verse 19, it says that Jesus raised himself up. Three verses that tell you that God raised him up, the Holy Spirit raised him up, and he raised himself up. You know why? Because I and my Father are one. He's God. If he wasn't God, he would not have had the ability to raise himself from the dead. Only God had the ability to do that. Those are great, great, great things that you can use in dealing with somebody that doesn't believe that Jesus Christ was God. Now the next thing, moving quickly here. Just so you have this in your Bible, verse 22 talks about the Feast of Dedication. That confuses the people because they go back looking for it in the Old Testament and can't find it back in Exodus and those things, so they're not sure what it is. You'll find this in Haggai chapter 2, verse 18. This is a feast that was put in at the dedication of Solomon's temple that is not covered in the Old Testament law. It's a legitimate feast that was put in at the dedication of the temple that they observed every year after that temple building. You want to get that into your Bible. Now verse 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And again, I and my Father are one. Now you should have this down by now, but I, again, I've heard many, many preachers use this passage here for the proof of eternal security that you're in Jesus' hand and no man can pluck you out. And then Jesus, you're in Jesus' hand and his hand is in God's hand so nobody can pluck you out of God's hand because you're in Jesus' hand and nobody can pluck. I got one even better for you. How about the fact is that you are the hand of God? Amen. You're not in anybody's hand. Amen. Nobody can pluck you out of God's hand because you're not in God's hand. Nobody can pluck you out of Christ's hand because you're not in Christ's hand. You are his hand. You're part of his body. Amen. Israel's not. So you see how those things work? It's the difference between knowing your Bible and playing with your Bible. It's the difference between being a Bible student or someone who just has a passing acquaintance with the Word of God. It's the fact that you understand that you have the greatest book before you the world has ever seen. And it would be a terrible tragedy if it took education to get it. It would be a terrible tragedy if it took brain cells past of amoeba to get it. It would be a terrible thing if it took years and years and years of study to get. It would be a terrible thing. God would not do that to creatures like us who are made a little lower than the angels and are basically brain dead. He gave you a book written in fifth grade English that all you have to do is learn the key words, learn the divisions, establish the context. Mark them in your Bible as a Bible student. I gave you so many today. I mean, if, if what I gave you today was uh, antibodies, you'd never get COVID-19 ever again. You got a bucket load today. But you need to get those in your Bible. Then, verse 30, this, verse 30 again, the Trinity. I and my Father are one. 
Now, I'm going to stop here, and you've got enough now, and boy, that's an understatement. But you see how that all this information flows all the way through your Bible. You, 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 here's what you've got to do. When I teach guys how to preach, I teach them that which we're going to do here once you all get resurrected from the dead. When I teach people how to preach, I tell them to get a mind, get a thought that you want to establish. Most guys, when they preach, they're all over the place. Uh, when they're done, they don't know where they've been, I don't know where they've been, and nobody listening to you knows where you've been. In preaching, you have to have one central thing you want to give the people. You know what that is. And then the rest of everything you do, every verse, every story, whatever, has to point toward that truth that you want to leave them with. You got to start with something that you say, this is what I want them to go home with. That is the purpose of your mind. And then everything else you do, every verse you bring in, every story, every passage, everything you do supports that idea. Most guys, they go here, they go here. You get, you know, it's, a, you know it's, a, it's just a disaster, you know, and it's a thing where you've got to be focused. And this is the way the Bible's put together. Listen to me. The Bible's put together around the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. End of story. That's all it is. And God has a plan for both of them. It may be different, but that's all you got. Everything else in the Bible, everything else in history, will get on board to support those two ideas. Once you get that in your brain and you start looking at it that way, wherever you're at, to see that if you're in the New Testament, you know it's the church and everything is to support that mission. If you're in the Old Testament, it's the Jew and everything supports that. The rest of it becomes fairly simple. So, Well, we'll hold up there and... Uh, We'll, uh, Thursday night, you may have some questions about this. You can get them to me. We'll talk about it. Well, we will have Bible study Thursday night. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get out of here. Be careful going home. Uh, stay safe. <coughs> if you start to feel bad or feel sick.